I'm only human, can you see? I made, I made a mistake Please just look me in my face Tell me everything's okay Cause I got it Ooh, never be like you tuning in to the MEL 2.0 series of MPO, the Australian Medical Students Association's podcast. My name is Daryl Goh and I will be your host for today's episode on misinformation and health with our special guests Hilda Bastian, Adam Dunn and Kieran Kennedy. Hilda Bastian started off as a long-time consumer advocate in Australia, but her career turned to analysing evidence, communicating about it and working to make it more accessible. Since then, she's helped to establish the Cochrane Collaboration worked for the NIH in the US, and is now at the tail end of PhD work, in some ways shifting evidence affects the validity of systematic reviews. Adam Dunn is Associate Professor and leads the discipline of Biomedical Informatics and Digital Health in the School of Medical Sciences at the University of Sydney. He leads research in clinical research informatics, aiming to improve the use of clinical trial evidence in systematic reviews and clinical practice and in public health informatics, aiming to improve health behaviours by monitoring how evidence and misinformation are taken up by the public. Karen Kennedy is a Melbourne doctor training in psychiatry, with a passion for mental health advocacy. Outside of medicine, he writes for publications like Men's Fitness and is active on social media, talking about health and debunking health myths. Before we begin, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast, here in what is now known as Australia. I extend my respects to elders of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, past, present and emerging. AMSA acknowledges that the sovereignty of this land has never been ceded, and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The issue of misinformation and myths is not a new one, but this is certainly one that has come to the forefront in recent years, with the term fake news being thrown about even outside the health sphere. But how do health myths come about? How do they spread? And what can we, as future doctors, do about them? Join me and our speakers as we talk about misinformation in health. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'll just start us off by asking a few questions so we can introduce ourselves and give our listeners an idea of where each of us is coming from. So let's start off with Hilda. Why is the issue of misinformation in health one that interests you? That's actually really quite a hard question, but I think it uh, really goes back to my childhood. I come from a family where there was a, an awful lot of lying and uh, an ethnic group that there was an awful lot of lying about back when I was a kid. And so I always had a lot of trouble trying to work out what was true and what wasn't. And it became a kind of lifelong obsession. Um, I eventually became, a when I was quite young, a, a consumer activist in health and so then it became about what's true and what isn't in health and who's biased and, and why aren't they. So I was an activist for, well, I've probably always been an activist, but uh, I, I was principally that for about 20 years and then morphed into meta-research and meta-science and systematic reviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I spend most of my time now really, I think, trying to grapple with different issues around uh, misinformation about specific topics. Thanks, Hilda. What about you, Kieran? You've been doing a lot of health myth-busting in the media and on social media. What got you into that? Thanks, Daryl, um, and thanks for having me here alongside Hilda and Adam to uh, have a bit of a chat about this. It's something that I am um, have sort of fallen into in a, in a 
in a way and have become quite passionate about. Um, so I'm a, a doctor um, working in Melbourne at the moment and I'm uh, just about to pop out the end uh, of my psychiatry training, um, which is awesome but a little bit scary as well. Uh, so alongside doing that and, and being at the hospital, uh, as you say, I have been doing um, over the last year or two a bit more work in the media and social media sphere um, and that's largely been around sort of calling out myths and, and myth, misinformation. Um, so this is something that's really prevalent um, today and, and I think especially for young people um, who are, are super plugged into the online world and social media and, and often the media as well. Uh, it's something that I think as doctors we're becoming more aware of in terms of where people are getting their information, what's filtering into their beliefs about their, their health and their mental health, their body image um, and, and the things that we can be doing or should be doing to look after our health. Um, and so so when it comes to the media and social media, some of that is is really good information, and I think it can be a real vehicle for for change and and for providing education and information to people, um, maybe in a little bit of a less traditional platform than we're used to as doctors. Um, but it also comes with a little bit of a a dark side as well, maybe if we use that term, because there is a lot of info out there that is uh, complete rubbish to uh to be putting it lightly um and so something i've been doing a bit more of in the last year particularly is um work within the media uh so that's involved sort of going on to uh morning tv shows like uh, the today show or studio 10 to talk about health topics um, and to call some of this stuff out um and then it's also included uh, writing and and speaking for some um, some areas like Men's Health magazine, um, you know, where we've been talking about everything from calling out mental health stigma to discussing why um, you know viral trends on TikTok of uh, dipping your scrotum in testicle uh, in soy sauce is uh, not evidence based. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so basically, I've found myself in a space where. Uh, you know, as as a doctor, we we've got an important voice to be calling out some of this misinformation and making sure that people are safe and and well informed um, when they're scrolling through Instagram or they're turning on the TV. So yes, that's uh, what I'm really looking forward to having a bit of a chat about with you guys today. Thanks, Kieran. And finally, what about Adam? Why is the issue of misinformation in health one that interests you? Hi, Daryl. Thanks. And yeah, thanks for the invitation to join the panel today as well. So my job, my new job, is to, to look after the discipline of biomedical informatics and digital health at the University of Sydney. And one of the things that we're meant to do as part of our job is to help to make sure that doctors, future doctors and other health professionals graduate with the kind of data literacy and experience with digital health technologies that they need. But actually, my own area of research includes things like understanding how clinical evidence is constructed and makes its way into practice, and second, how, how looking at how misinformation spreads, and in particular, looking at how misinformation spreads on social media. So unlike Kieran, I'm not so much of an active myth buster, but really more of a myth observer. Um, my team, we like to use tools like machine learning and network science to try and track the spread of misinformation. We, we tend to focus on things like vaccine misinformation and vaccine anti-vaccine rhetoric. 
Um, but we've also looked at things like conspiracy theories in general and the kinds of poorly evidenced health claims that appear on online forums and, and on social media. To be honest, I've never seen the soy sauce one before, though. So for me, I think the kind of the recent pandemic that we've, that you know, the, this global crisis we're sort of living in at the moment has been a really interesting time for studying misinformation. Being able to sort of watch the genesis and spread of all kinds of misinformation play out in real time, from bad preprints suggesting that the virus was engineered in a lab through to dodgy research that just has been misrepresented further in the news and social media and caused real harm. You know, I have to say, though, that it feels like there's been some sort of explosive growth, not only in the amount of misinformation that's that's out there at the moment, but also the number of people who've decided they're now experts in studying misinformation on social media. So um, I guess this is similar to the number of new armchair epidemiologists we see making predictions about how the pandemic will play out. You know, if it was up to me and if I could wave a magic wand and do anything in this area, it would be to take the kind of the slow, careful and appropriate research study designs that we use to understand and, and look at misinformation and, and turn it into a kind of observatory or a surveillance system that we could deploy in real time to better track misinformation and to know where and when to sort of spend our time and resources on mitigating its effects. And really, that's what my research group is trying to do right now. Thanks, Adam. We do have a very diverse panel with us today with very different experiences and expertise in tackling the issue of misinformation in health. Let's take it back to the basics first. What is misinformation in health? What are some common myths and how do they spread? Luda, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, sure. It's uh, hard to know really where to, to start off. And I think that there's a lot of different kinds of misinformation. Um, there's things where we're just um, misinformed and partly because uh, our knowledge just isn't good enough yet. There's things that are partially wrong and distorted. There are things that are totally wrong. There are things that are absolute outright lies and fantasies. And um, and I think in some ways there's that issue that's interesting, not just how they spread, but also why they do. And uh, I think it's a little bit like bushfires, really. You know, you can have, uh, you know, it depends on how vulnerable an area is, what people do about it, how much they've tried to prevent it. Um, you know, you can have everything from a little spot fire where it only takes a few buckets of water and that's the end of it, um, or then there could be something that goes totally out of control and does this catastrophic amount of damage, like uh, like that whole thing that happened about uh, autism and vaccines just starting from one crappy bit of research in a press conference, um, leading to just absolutely global catastrophic harm. Um, and uh, so... I think as we look at each one of us, you can start to see all the different kinds of things that uh, that kind of lead to them. It can be that 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 people are taught these things. I mean, misinformation doesn't just come from uh, ill-informed members of the public. It can come from the medical profession too, and, uh, and quite a lot of those myths get created that uh, that we battle with get created that way. Um, you get things that are like, and you look at the issue about the common one about antioxidants being you know, really good for you and uh, and that whole kind of theory around it. There never really was any uh, good basis to that, um, but it's kind of like an easy thing. It sort of sounds logical. It feels smart to people and so on. Um, and then you get people who, for their ideologies or for commercial reasons, because they're peddling some kind of anti antioxidant or whatever, you know, it just feeds into all of these, taps into all of these things. The thing can just grow absolutely enormous because there are so many people who've got an interest in in keeping that myth alive. Um, 
uh, it's sometimes it's it's kind of like comes from really official sources, like that whole thing about believing that all screening is good came from the early campaigns from health promotion experts trying to say that early detection is always better, you know, um, uh, and it isn't. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't uh, better, but, uh, you know, that, that, hot, that again, it sort of felt logical. It had people who were promoting it. Um, and then you get that, uh, uh, you get another angle to it, I think, that's really quite important is that it's oftentimes people's self-interest to really promote these kinds of things. And then especially when people have got real charisma in uh, in a particular, in any kind of particular area and, and they can really fuel it. And no area is actually safe from that. We've had the, the misinformation even about how to deal with misinformation that's gone really quite rampant. Um, there was this... Uh, uh, just a, a small group of people doing really quite weak research around a thing called the backfire effect, which they then promoted. They cherry picked it. They didn't look at go and look for studies from other groups that had different outcomes. So then they massively promoted these ideas uh, about uh, about there being this absolute backfire effect, and you should never you know repeat misinformation when you're trying to debunk it. Um, and now they kind of moved on to saying, okay, well. Uh, uh, now we're saying um, it does, you know, it does work or whatever. But the information that they're using, the basis for it, is still just as weak as it was before. So I, I think you have this whole tie-in of, of, of people who want to believe it, um, people who've got an interest in promoting misinformation. Well, it's gone all the way through now, um, even to sort of government misinformation campaigns. Not in the kind of conspiracy theory sense, but literally in terms of of wanting to use social media to, to increase social discord and so on. So, um, I, yeah, I think it's just a, a real thing about how uh, uh, but it's a really quite a fascinating thing how much because of our own biases, our ideologies or our, the, the way uh, even really well-educated people are susceptible to others with charisma um, that, we, that these kinds of things can spread as much as they do. Yeah, and it can also be a kind of a political thing too, right, Hilda? I mean, um, definitely misinformation can be heavily politicised. And, and I think probably in, in, you know, in 2020, no matter which country you're in, you know, the information that you see and you absorb is probably a function of your you know, ideology, your politics, your worldview. You know, we're, we're seeing this quite clearly with what people are doing with, with, um, uh, in the drug hydroxychloroquine, you know, where people's views are probably very similar to where they align on the political spectrum. You know, that's, of course, similar to things like climate change, where it doesn't matter how well educated you are in maths and science. Um, there's a divergence that aligns with your political spectrum. Um, so some of this is also about how we, we use, you know, published evidence as well. You know, there was a there were, we did a study. It was probably like five years ago now. And we looked at reviews and commentaries related to the drug Tamiflu, um, which is an antiviral used for influenza. And so we had a feeling that people were writing these reviews. We're not talking about systematic reviews here. We're talking about narrative reviews and commentaries and editorials. And we thought that they were probably selectively using evidence to suit their particular agenda. Um, and so that agenda might be a commercial conflict, a research agenda, it might be some personal, personal view. And so what we did was to use machine learning to see if we could predict the conclusion of the reviews based on what they cite. Turns out the answer is yes. So without even reading commentaries and, and reviews, all you need to do is look at the reference list and you can predict whether or not the review is going to be favorable or unfavorable based purely on the, on the reference list. And so I think this really interesting thing that relates to how we see when people are online and they're talking about misinformation, they say things like, 
I'll do your research or I did my research. And we kind of laugh at them because we think, oh, well, they probably looked on YouTube. But it's not quite as simple as any of that really, is it? I mean, in many cases, people can selectively cite peer-reviewed research, um, research that's being published and, and is being promoted by, you know, official journals, associations, governments, whatever it might be. And they can, they can selectively cherry pick that evidence to produce pretty much any conclusion they like. And I think in that that it's really important to to remember that that whole thing about ideology isn't just about like your political beliefs and whether you're left wing left wing or right wing or whatever. It's actually a really quite broad thing, and there's a lot of ideology in health, like being reflexively anti-farmer uh, always. Uh, and most of the ideologies in health actually end up harming patients. I reckon. In fact, I've never seen one that doesn't, um, because the minute you're either pro something or you're anti something. Um, Sooner or later, that's going to come in conflict with what's in the best interests of the general public and patients. It's going to have to. And uh, um, so those things are a, a real trap. You know, the minute, the minute that you fall into this belief of it's a drug, therefore I'm going to be suspicious about it or whatever, or this person uh, has this set of beliefs and therefore I'm going to be suspicious of them, the minute you fall into any of those kind of shortcuts because we, we need shortcuts to try and grapple with that vast amount of information that's coming with us uh, coming at us you just have to be uh, incredibly careful um, about falling into any ideological trap yourself um, and it's almost impossible um, not to fall into an ideological trap yourself yeah and i i guess to to jump in on this i mean i i agree completely with everything you guys have said there and you know, I think that's why it's, it's so important to have discussions like this when we are training to become doctors and, and during medical school. And, and Adam, like what you're obviously involved in with, with teaching students how to sort of move through some of this in terms of the information and, and things. I mean, it's so important because there is so much information out there now, isn't it? And it's uh, it's easy or more than easy for, for anyone to have information, whether they want it or not. Um, and, and for me, being a doctor, sort of moving through this, um, you know, moving through my specialist training at a time where the world has become so much more connected, plugged in, and uh, social media in particular is this massive machine churning out information and opinion where we often have no idea where that's come from. Um, it, it's a really challenging but fascinating thing as a doctor to be to be in that space. So thinking about this is something that I think medical students are going to have to be more and more aware of um, as they move through their training because it's, it's, it's an important part of becoming a, a doctor. Um, you know, and in my work, I see, you know, patients coming to me and asking about a whole range of stuff. Um, and some of that, as, as I think Hilda touched on before, some of it might be, you know, very clearly myth or fantasy or misinformation but, but like Adam and Hilda, you both pointed out, this can be really tricky, can't it? Because some of it isn't quite that simple. Some of it's not Bermuda Triangle kind of stuff. Some of it is, well, yes, there's some evidence that points to that, but there's been other evidence that says no, or, you know, yes, a study did come out showing that that was the case, but the study maybe had some flaws. 
you know, and so as a doctor, this this is something that we do get approached with and asked. And and for me as a psychiatry registrar, for example, in one clinic appointment, that might be, well, what does the research show about the difference between quetiapine and risperidone in terms of its safety for a pregnant woman? Um, and then in the next session, it might be, my mum's cousin told me that if I take vitamin C tablets, that's going to help cure my depression. You know, so so in any one day as a doctor, you can you can come into this kind of contact with myth and misinformation in a whole different way, uh, spectrum of ways. And, um, you know, that's why sort of calling this stuff out and having a discussion about it is so important. Yeah, I think there's another thing there as well, and that is that we are all going to do it at some point. You know, we're all going to misinform people, absolutely. Um, uh, and for me, that, that point at which I realised that as an activist, I'd been you know, staunchly working for some things for years uh, where actually I turned out to be wrong and, uh, and people actually died um, as a result. Um, and that whole thing about having to, to be able to be aware of it so that you're not actually, you know, it, I mean, that's a horrible thing that first time that you realise that you've hurt people. Um, because of because you weren't careful enough about your own information and and, and then you passed it on. Um, it's, it's a it's a really really painful experience and uh, uh, and I think that that's a, just something that we should all be trying to ensure that as few doctors as possible have to go through. Mm, definitely, and I think that's that's something that is quite scary for doctors in a way, um, you know. And and so I guess I want to follow up my little spiel before by saying as well, you know, to the medical students listening that that you know I think it can feel like a very confronting and in its own way quite frightening thing to be like, well, f- far out. How the heck do I actually really ever a hundred percent know? what is the correct answer here? And, you know, I think we're all very aware of the fact that in health and in medicine, there are often no absolute answers. And, you know, this is incredibly complex. And so it's not about, you know, feeling that as a doctor, you have to be stepping into that position of being, you know, all knowing and all powerful, which is definitely not the case. But it's about, um, you know, thinking around um, how can we best inform people and help them make the decisions about their health and, and what they're doing with it based on the information that we have. Thanks everyone for your insights. Yes, health myths and misinformation can come from a wide variety of sources. It's really interesting to see how we are all human and all susceptible to our own biases and perspectives. In this connected world, everyone has access to information, reliable or not. And as a future doctor, it is scary to think about how I'm going to advise people on things when I myself can't possibly know everything. But misinformation does harm people and it's important to do something about it. But what can we do about this, Adam? Sure. I mean, I guess that's kind of a critical question, really, isn't it? So, so let, me, let me maybe start off the conversation by focusing specifically on, on what we can do with misinformation kind of through news and social media before we go on to discussing what we can individually do as as people, as clinicians interacting with patients and our families and friends. So on, on news and social media, um, there's a couple of really clear ways that, that um, people or social media platforms have been trying to, to deal with um, uh, uh, stopping the spread of, of, of misinformation. Um, so back in, I think it was 2018, a group of sort of influential researchers in, in the area of computational social science 
they wrote an article in, in science about how to tackle fake news. And for them, they were likely focusing on political fake news mostly because that's the area that they come from. But the recommendations that they made kind of likely apply to health misinformation just as well as they do for, for political fake news. And so they proposed two types of interventions um, that that computational social scientists or people like me um, should try to develop um, into the future. The first one was uh, new ways to reliably identify misinformation at scale. And so we know that there's so much misinformation floating around at the moment and it can propagate so quickly and it can be really hard to kind of keep track of misinformation as it emerges, try and, you know, stomp out those small fires before they become major, major bushfires, right? <clears throat> So the, the first thing that platforms can do if they're able to ide quickly identify misinformation is to censor or to downrank those posts so that they don't appear in people's timelines <clears throat> and they don't appear in, in the recommendations that social media platforms make so often or the people promoting misinformation don't appear in people's recommendations as often. This is something that YouTube and Instagram in particular have struggled with. And uh, what we know is that when we look at YouTube and Instagram, really kind of a relatively innocuous search or just a, like a little play around on YouTube and Instagram can very quickly lead us down these rabbit holes, these kind of deep dark worlds of conspiracy theories and QAnon and all these different places that can be quite harmful um, forms of misinformation. The second one, and one that I think is probably an even more important one to think about, is uh, developing the tools that can educate people, that can help improve their health literacy and their digital literacy while they're, while they're you know, active in their online social spaces. So these would be tools for things like critical appraisal, um, being able to spot misinformation and then point out the flaws in the credibility of that misinformation can be really useful. You know, there used to be a, a, a website or a, a group um, called Health News Review. They've since been shut down, but the idea of creating an automated health news review, but delivered to people as they're exposed to misinformation, as they encounter it in online social spaces, that's kind of where we're headed towards in terms of what we can do about myths and misinformation at this kind of population scale, at the scale of the entire social media platform. So, so we know that some of the social media platforms have recently started flagging this kind of information not necessarily removing the information, but just flagging the posts that they think are misinformation. So far, these heuristics are not perfect, right? So um, I saw recently, just, just yesterday, I think it was, where there was someone was making a joke about 5G and coronavirus. And of course, they got that post got flagged with a get the facts link. And of course, it's probably okay to get the facts when, you, when someone's making a joke about 5G and coronavirus. That's probably a fair thing to, to, to post. I mean, they didn't necessarily label it as this was a piece of misinformation. They said, you know, if you're interested in 5G and coronavirus, you might want to get the facts about, the, you know, 5G is not causing coronavirus. And so I think that was probably a fair way to do it. But of course, all of these me measures are kind of the, the infrastructure end. These are the measures that exist at the kind of population level where we're trying to, to, to quickly mitigate the impact of emerging misinformation trends um, as they appear in the kind of places that we inhabit and the places where we get our information from. Um, so that's not necessarily what, a, what a, a doctor might be able to do or what an individual might be able to do, but that's what we would do from a sort of a population scale. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a um, that, that, that what you sort of touched on about 
uh, people developing their health literacy and their media literacy and evidence literacy and every other kind of literacy uh, is actually incredibly important here because those kinds of interventions can only go so far. And uh, uh, and anybody who's inclined to believe uh, that stuff about the coronavirus and the, the, the damn towers um you know, that kind of a thing is probably only going to increase their beliefs that there's a conspiracy out there to uh, to to try and hide the truth from uh, from everyone. So, um, you know, that that kind of level is just kind of uh, you know impossible to deal with to to some extent. Um, but you know, that whole process of how we can work out how can we actually be better ourselves at not falling for, for things at uh, uh, at not Acting on our confirmation bias, and you know, you know, passing on um, things that are that are less obvious than that, you know, so that you know, okay, so sure you can say okay, five G towers and coronavirus, that's in one category, but then when you know a really really famous epidemiologist comes out and says right up front, you know. It's just the flu. You're all overreacting. Only 10,000 people are going to die in the US. That's when it gets uh, incredibly hard. Um, and uh, uh, and that whole process then of, uh, of, of how we can both uh, protect ourselves from, from jumping on bad wagons and believing something because of the charisma of the person who's saying it, um, all of those kinds of things. Uh, then it also becomes that thing of how can we increase our trustworthiness so that we're believed when when we're trying to put out a fire, um, and that's an extremely uh, that's an extremely hard thing. You know that 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 it's it's a corny phrase. I think it's a, a Russian one, a, a Russian one, but it's really true that that trust uh, arrives slowly on foot, foot but departs on a horse. You know, um, you know that whole thing about how you develop a, a reputation that's actually valid, so that your your patients trust you, your family trusts you. The general public trusts you. The people who follow you on social media or are watching you on television or whatever trust you, um, and that you're worthy of that trust. That's actually really hard. We've put this colossal amount of effort into things like bias detection and all that kind of stuff, but nowhere near enough into bias reduction. How do we actually reduce our own biases? Um, and that's the really. Uh, I think that actually becomes really quite key. Yeah, I I completely agree with all of that. Um, and and as you say, how moving into that discussion of well, if we're talking about how we respond to and how we tackle this stuff, um, you know, I think as individuals, it can feel a, a bit overwhelming, can't it? You know, I think for as all three of us have touched on, you know, even as people working within the the medical and health field, or you know. Um, Hilda and Adam, you guys especially more more than me, but you know, knowing so much about this, I, I mean, it, it can be so hard even for us not to get sort of drawn into things, can't it? You see something on the news, or you see something on social media, and it appears very um, legitimate, or it's striking some emotional chord in you, and it can be hard not to kind of start to fall down that rabbit hole of of well, well maybe this is true, or maybe they are hiding the truth from me. Or um, and and so I think, of course, as the soon-to-be psychiatrist, I'm going to bring this into it. But you know, recognizing that a lot of misinformation and particularly, I think, myths that are spread about health, where that comes from, from a psychological and emotional sense as well, is really important because often that is the case. You know, and we see that online, don't we? People are so 
emotive and so passionate about some of these things um you know and that's hinting i think to where where myths and myth information actually come from so some of the things that we know about where myths in particular spring from or conspiracy theories spring from you know those things are more likely to occur on a subject that is anxiety provoking for people where there is a lot of different information that's hard to filter through, where there's uncertainty, um, where there is an emotional component to the outcome. Um, And so naturally that leads our mind to dive into a position where we want to feel certain and we want to feel in control. And, And I think the reason that health and when it comes to our body the reason why we're constantly kind of feeling like we're being <laughs> hit with these new diets or new research shows that vitamin C is good for this or, you know, it's because when it comes to our health and our bodies, this is something that is obviously inherently anxiety provoking. We want to be healthy. We want to know we're doing the right thing for ourselves, for our kids, for our families. Um, and so I think part of us learning to sort of be more aware of this and tackle it is actually acknowledging where it comes from. Um, and I know that's a very psychiatristy thing to say, but, you know, knowledge is power and acknowledging where it's coming from is, is part of the key here for me, you know, and I'll be interested to hear what Hilda and Adam think about this, but I think when it comes to how we approach that with family or friends who might be believing different things to us, I think grounding ourselves in that can be key. It's remembering that, well, this isn't necessarily an evil person who's wanting to, you know, spread harmful lies. It might be more the case that, well, you know, Karen has two young kids and she's very concerned about making sure she makes the right choices for her children. And maybe that is a part of why the anti-vaccine movement for for him or her is something that is really, really strongly on their radar, even when the evidence is, is obviously not there for that. So for me, that's a really important part to how we actually start to ground ourselves and, and tackle some of this. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and especially what you raised about, um, you know, um, people being potentially more vulnerable um, to to misinformation when there when there's uncertainty or when there's risk and, and those sorts of things can be really important. There was a, a study that came out from the University of Sydney just recently, <clears throat> and it hasn't been published yet. It's just in um, as a preprint um, where they surveyed people and they looked at you know the kinds of myths and misinformation that people believed about um, about the coronavirus and. Um, they found that people who were in more vulnerable communities and um, came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people who didn't speak English at home, um, people who were potentially more at risk of of, um, of the effects of the, the pandemic, those were the people who more often believed in, in myths and misinformation. So, so uh, absolutely, there's this case where people can be more vulnerable or misinformation becomes more salient. Um, for them when they're in certain situations and the uncertainty around the whole pandemic, of course, has probably heightened that as well. But I want to come back to this other thing that I I think I've noticed a fair bit when I've been looking at misinformation and myths um, and how they play out um, kind of at a societal or community level. And that's the, 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 the idea that 
that what we see more often um, around us is something that we want to join in on um, for a sense of belonging, right? And so what happens sometimes is that people can be very vocal about their opinions and they appear to be more common than they really are because the only things we're seeing are the people who are talking out about it rather than the people who are just keeping quiet who we don't particularly notice, right? And so there's this whole kind of potential for a performative aspect to to the the presentation of misinformation online and sometimes we see this thing where a group of people can can their language morphs and changes over time as they become more and more introspective and they become more and more extreme in the language that they use around a particular um, topic or a particular idea Um, and really the people who are keeping quiet are probably the ones that we want to pay more attention to and I worry that sometimes what happens is you get this this level of sort of colossal groupthink in these large online communities where people um, start to, to, to be more performative in how, what they say about misinformation over time just for a sense of belonging so that they feel like they belong to this group and, and it makes them happy to, to join in on this mis- misinformation. I think we saw this with examples like um, the incels, the involuntary celibate people, um, um, and the groups that they they were attached to online. Um, we certainly see this with um, um, you know the more politicised misinformation and people who are um, you know really keen on a particular you know president or prime minister or whatever it might be. And the kinds of language that they use can get get themselves really worked up in these groups. Um, and it becomes this weird performative mess and it can cause real harm, of course, as well. Yeah, I mean, you see that too uh, in studies around uh, vaccination and, and people on Facebook, that the, the people who have got concerns about vaccination are uh, not just far more organised um, but, but far more vocal and then people get an overestimation of how many of the people around them actually believe X or Y. And uh, and that becomes a problem. So uh, that thing of, of, of thinking you doing nothing is safe somehow actually isn't because all the people who are silently bystanding uh, are actually contributing to the problem in that sense. Um, I think in terms of what Kieran was saying, one of the things um, that as I was kind of like nodding furiously while he was talking, you know, I was also thinking, you know, one of the problems that we have that we're um, – nowhere near as good as we should be at dealing with is the fact that, yeah, sure, there's uh, uncertainty, but then there is actually a real lot of effort being put in to create uh, suspicion and doubt and uncertainty. Um, and that's uh, even even though there shouldn't be. I mean, that, uh, that level of, uh, I mean, it was a kind of playbook that you saw done really well with um, tobacco companies and smoking and you saw it with uh, climate change and really in quite profoundly well-organised ways. Um, but, you know, you, you watch it happening around, say, the HPV vaccine in particular or a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of, of levels where there actually isn't that much uncertainty. Um, and yet people create this fear and they create this suspicion. Um, and so how we can actually uh, start to counter that um, and, and get people to be able to see through that. Um, but then as Kieran says, once you're afraid, you're actually basically cognitively impaired, aren't you? It's kind of actually extremely hard um, to address fears once people have actually managed to arouse them. And people are, are really um, 
pressing those buttons for all they're worth. I mean, that's why they call them hot button issues, isn't it? Um, because they know that they can actually um, trade on people's um, emotions and fears to get them to come around, you know, to manipulate them to a certain point of view. So that whole process of how we can actually become less easy to manipulate all of us is uh, really critical. Yeah, and that's um, oh, that's such a, a perfect point there, Hilda, and I completely agree. And, um, you know, so I think something that I have, have talked about before and, and try to, to bring for myself as well when I'm, I'm sort of um, managing maybe some of these questions and things, whether it's in a clinical context at the hospital or whether it's um, on social media or, you know, on a, a media interview or a TV segment, has often been to try to not get pulled into the emotion of it maybe. Um, and, and that might be one point that, that people can maybe take here as a means to to try and and sort of wade through how we do ground ourselves and and tackle sort of confronting some of these issues um because i don't think you know i've had people ask well well what do i say to that friend who really believes that um i don't know that that the keto diet cures coronavirus for example which is something that i've um, talked a little bit about when coronavirus first came out there was all this stuff online and on social media um, from the fitness world and the fitness culture about suddenly people selling diet plans were were sort of subtly making out that there's evidence that a ketogenic diet can protect you from COVID-19. And that obviously came from some extrapolated data from rats, I think it was, that that rats that were on a ketogenic diet had some kind of improved outcome when it came to a virus that wasn't even related to COVID-19. And that sort of somehow filters through to then people believing or trying to push the point that that COVID-19, you know, is something that a ketogenic diet can help, you know, sort of fix. And um, so I think trying not to get drawn into the emotion of it, and particularly as a doctor, feeling that, you know, it's not about fighting here, or it's not about necessarily, you know, maybe winning people over. It, it's about, as Hilda said, not staying silent it's about being a voice expressing your thoughts and your evidence-based thoughts and information on the topic so that it's not just a sea of of hey keto diet cures covid that's not all people are seeing because the other evidence has just been kept silent um, so i think as doctors that's why it actually is really important that we are starting to become more sort of uh, in touch with how some of this information spreads and, and what we can do as doctors to sort of stand against that or have our, have our own voice in that space. Yeah, I think that's really important, that keeping out of the emotion of it and then taking what people are saying seriously and try and, and, and find the little kernels of things that are actually things that you actually can discuss because it's just a basic sign of respect when you take people seriously and it's hard for any of us to uh, listen and uh, trust somebody who clearly is talking down to us um thinks we're idiots thinks we're whatever you know um so that's a, a really critical one and i think it's uh, once you're you're not talking just about the one one 
Um, if you're talking about if there's more than one person in the consultation room, or if you're saying something in social media uh, or you know, broadcast media or whatever, um, then it's really important to remember that that even if you can't, it, it's not about just that one person that you're talking to. It's about everybody else that can hear what you say. And you may not get through to that person that you're talking about. You may not change that mind, but you may actually influence how many other people jump on that bandwagon and make it worse. They may at least think, oh, wait a minute, now I've got some doubts about their doubts. I'm I'm going to not join in. Uh, or you might actually even actively change their minds. And that's a really important thing. I think one of the things for me uh, that's been quite important and this whole COVID-19 thing is, is, is really showing uh, really quite dramatically how many people haven't done that work, is that I think that you actually have to practice small in safe situations first, you know. So, uh, you know, do that and speak up and whatever when the stakes are really low. Um, and then you get the practice at it, you know. So if you deal with, say, somebody's um, excessive beliefs about this kind of toothbrush versus that kind of toothbrush, I'm not saying that's not important at all. Um, obviously, you know, dental health and, and gum disease and all those sorts of things are terribly critical but they're not as difficult a, a, a debate to have uh, as a debate about COVID-19 is, right? So you can actually start to grow your confidence, confidence and develop your skills and make your mistakes when the stakes are lower. Um, and then when something hits like this, um, like this catastrophe, and suddenly you've got these people saying, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, you're all overreacting, um, that you've got the skills actually um, to get out there and and, and do it when, uh, you know, when it really matters. Yes, those are some really interesting points about why people believe misinformation and how we can go about dealing with the problem and the issues we face in doing so. And since we're now on the topic of what doctors can do, which is something our audience will be very interested in hearing about, what roles can doctors and future doctors play in this? Kieran, what do you think? Yeah, so I guess maybe I'll... Um... Yeah, I'm happy to jump in and, and tackle that one first. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is this is an area for for better or worse that that as medical students and as doctors, we we are going to have to become more comfortable with. Um, one of the really interesting things for me, sort of finding myself in a place where I'm doing a little bit more of this work and and um, advocacy and and sort of media related i guess education about health in a way um has been the the sort of the opinion and the sense from the medical community about that as well because this is still something that you know for doctors in particular is you know it, it's not it's not in the realms of traditional medicine isn't it is it so you know i think there are more and more doctors at the moment sort of moving into social media and having a presence on social media or you know writing or speaking or presenting in in a media type context um, and i'm definitely not saying that that's what every medical student and doctor should be feeling that they have to do or they're gonna have to do that is not the case at all but you know i think this is something that that as health professionals um, we're going to have to move into more uh, and as the future kind of evolves, because this is where people are actually spending a lot of their their mental time, and this is where particularly young people are getting a lot of their health information. 
um, like I'm sure Adam and, and Hilda will sort of probably be more aware of some of the actual academic research and stuff behind this. But I mean, I've seen research recently that is really quite scary about where, you know, how much information, particularly young people, get about their health from social media, for example. Um, you know, and, and that is, as we've touched on, coming often from spaces or people who have no background in medical training or health or sifting through information in an evidence sense. Um, but because they have a connection with that person online and maybe because in our modern world, likes and following counts mean a lot, even subconsciously, if not consciously, you know, if someone's got 2 million followers and they're suddenly saying, well, you know, I spend $200 a week on this vitamin antioxidant shake supplement and it's cured my, you know, chronic bowel disease, then people are going to sort of take that on board. And um, I think as doctors and health professionals, that's why we need to sort of be feeling a little bit more comfortable to come into this space. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I've become quite passionate about this, um, because yes, it's not tradition; it's not a traditional area for a doctor to be in in terms of um, you know going on TV or writing for you know men's fitness magazines or posting on Instagram. But you know, I think I think we need to be countering back a little bit. And as we've said, it's not about arguing, it's not about wading into a war, but it is about ensuring that amongst the, the sea of misinformation and myths out there, people are also able to see and hear in some form some evidence-based information that is grounding people there. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to sort of hear what Adam and Hilda think about the, the space that health professionals have here in particular. I mean, it's really a simple equation, isn't it? Doctors are still, and especially GPs in particular, are still the most trusted people that we look to for, for advice and guidance when it comes to health, obviously, right? I mean, you know, we, we, don't want to, we don't want to hear from politicians and lawyers and marketing and all, that, all those sorts of people would certainly go to our doctor. And they're still, you know, no matter what survey you look at, they're still the most trusted people that we talk to. And so I think it's a question of, you know, we, how often do we actually see these people in our lives? I mean, it might be hours per year, whereas we spend, you know, weeks and weeks of our time um, sifting through social media, on social media, being exposed to all sorts of information. And sure, you know, the explosion of, of um, health information online has certainly been positive, right? I mean, we can, we can access a lot more high-quality information as well as misinformation, but it's that people have trouble discerning between um, what's right and what's wrong when they when they engage in these spaces online, and so it's absolutely critically important that there are at least some, you know, doctors who are trusted, who aren't compromised by, you know, um, financial conflicts of interest, who have genuinely, you know, do no harm at the core of their principles, who are active in these spaces and engaging with people where they spend most of their time. I mean, it'd be nice if everybody went to their to their GP enough times per year to actually get proper advice and to listen to them and to trust them. But of course, they're not going to to their doctors as often as they as they as that, and they spend a lot more time online. So, so yeah, look, I agree with you entirely. It's important that we have 
these trusted voices in the spaces where we're we're spending our time. Uh, and I think too, uh, it does go back to that first core thing: is that you a have to genuinely be right and and be trusted. I mean, a lot of misinformation is coming from doctors. I mean, it really is. And uh, um, I, one of the things that's that's frustrating for me as uh, as a as a person who's who's got a long kind of activist background and then it's trying to counter a lot of this stuff now. I'm kind of like I'm watching people make these arguments and give out information. That you know, it's easy to drive a, a bus through. You know, so a doctor will hand out some brochure about vaccination that says vaccine X has no side effects, right? And you sit and go, that is utterly absurd. No drug that can have an effect has no side effects. Do you know what I mean? So it becomes this kind of a thing of of um, yes, it may be true that that vaccine uh, benefits massively outweigh its risks. But that's what the information should be saying, you know. Um, and you can, uh, you know, you can have that stuff, the influence that you can have in the, in the moment on a person in a, in a conversation, and that's really quite profound. But it also has to spread through to what is the information that you share, you know, what's lying around the consultation room, you know, um, uh, what's, what things do you ever recommend that people read and those kinds of things. Um, we actually need to kind of move to a kind of way of communicating with uh, patients that's all, that that uh, gives them a lot more credit uh, for what they can understand and also uh, starts to sort of give information to people um, that isn't so easy for other people to demolish and uh, to disprove and, and therefore undermine the credibility of wherever that information source came from. Um, because... You know, as well as yes, there's uh, that argument about how much people t uh, spend on social media versus how much time they they spend face to face with the doctor. Uh, there's also that thing of that we don't remember um, most of the time where we heard something, um, and that's true of all of us. If if I sort of went to you after you had sort of twenty minutes on the internet, you're not going to remember whether the thing that's stuck in your memory is something you saw in the Lancet or it's something you saw in the Sydney Morning Herald. The odds are you will not remember where it came from. And that's true of uh, everybody. So, you know, we all have that kind of, um, I think, obligation to try and uh, ensure that we're increasing the pool of reliable um, and kind of safe, uh, you know, th things that are kind of safe information out there um, to as many individuals. I mean, if, even if you think, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into some kind of public campaigning on, 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 on social media, whatever. But what you say on Facebook within your own family and friends, that matters too because in the end it's kind of like this isn't just some mass thing that's happening. It's, it's always made up of individuals and you never know who is the individual that's going to go out and do either extraordinary good or extraordinary harm. Uh, so, you know, being a good curator of information and being sure that the, the things that you link to and so forth um, and the materials that you hand out to patients that they may walk away with and may read, um, the, all of those things are incredibly important. Yeah, look, look, curating information is really important as well. And I think it's also important to be really transparent and honest with how you communicate information. But of course, there's lots of different, um, you know, there are skills that you can learn in, in communication. And actually, the flip side of that is how do you communicate with people once it's kind of a bit too late, once they already have kind of um, embedded that misinformation in their in their beliefs as well. And so there's actually some 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 nice literature to, to that if 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 Doc, future doctors haven't seen this as part of their training already. 
are good resources on how to communicate with people about misinformation in an attempt to debunk the misinformation as well. So in particular for vaccination, so Julie Leesk, who's a colleague of mine, um, wrote some very practical guidance on how to communicate with patients who are sort of vaccine hesitant. And a lot of that draws on, on literature and theory that is still relatively, you know, recent and current um, and quite good. So there was a, I think some of the best work in this space was was still a paper from 2012 by Lewandowski, Cook and others. Um, and it was published in the Psychological Science for Public Interest in Public Interest Journal. And um, the title of the paper was called Misinformation and its Correction, Continued Influence and Successful Debiasing. And while it's a, in peer-reviewed literature, it actually has this really neat infographic which explains some of the some of the major problems that we often see when we're trying to communicate with people and try and change their minds and try and debunk misinformation, um, and the kind of methods and practical advice that you can that you can use when you're trying to to deal with those. And so, yes, we have seen some issues around you know backfire effect and whether or not those things are always true for always cases for all kinds of myths. But the four problems that they encountered were, you know. Um, uh, influence effect, familiarity backfire effect, overkill backfire effect, and worldview backfire effect. It's got some really good advice about how to engage with people in ways that don't conflict with their their worldview. And there's a lot of different kind of advice in there. That it, and I would encourage um, people who haven't seen that um, to engage with the literature around how to communicate with people um, effectively to sort of debunk that misinformation when they're in sort of a one-on-one, whether with, with their family, with their patients, whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. And and I I love all of that, and and that's what I was just going to say as well, Adam. As a as a clinician and as a doctor, I I think it often does come down to honesty. Um, you know, and Hilda pointed out that, for example, with with vaccines, you know, I, I think there's a temptation because we do want to advise someone maybe in quotation marks correctly um, because we do find it uncomfortable if we're confronted with information or opinions that uh, are not in line with our own or what the medical you know fraternity has has taught us Um, there is often a temptation to just sort of say no 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 you know there's nothing it's fine you know it's not going to be an issue um so i think as well part of of recognizing how we can give people advice and communicate about this as doctors comes down to also just sitting with a little bit of the discomfort and the uncertainty ourselves as well you know so so there are a lot of times for example if i talk to someone about the evidence around the risks around a, a particular medication versus another medication, um, you know, and that can be in really difficult, very emotive arenas, like I pointed out before, you know, certain medications during pregnancy. Um, and a question I get a lot, particularly in the mental health sphere, as well as this medication safe to take while I'm pregnant. And and if if I, as a doctor, said, you know, well, yes, it's completely fine, completely safe. There are no side effects and nothing will ever happen. That is that is not helpful to my patient. But it's also, as Hilda kind of pointed out, maybe going to lead to perpetuating people then experiencing things themselves that are not in line with that. Because as we say, nothing is without side effects or risks in medicine. And so it's about sort of being honest and a little bit more comfortable as doctors as well in recognizing that, you know, even if we have the most up-to-date 
evidenced information that might not include everything we need to know and we can maybe never be 100% certain. So, for example, across my medical training, I've had to become more comfortable with saying we can never say there is no risk and these are the potential side effects or risks, but it's about a, a, a risk-benefit weighing up here and working with a patient and talking to them about that and just sitting with them in that complexity. And I think that can sort of be a way that we can think about a lot of these discussions. And we come back again to that sense of it's not about having an argument here or, or being right or wrong a lot of the time. It's giving a patient the, the opportunity to express what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've read on Instagram and listening to them and, and having them feel that, that they are respected and that them asking you about those views is legitimate. Uh, and then it's, it's about just expressing that, okay, you may have seen that, you may have read that, you may have experienced this and believe this, but as a doctor, this is the information that I have and this is what the evidence, as far as I know, shows us. Um, and, and that is often much more helpful than being dismissive or disrespectful or getting into a, a push-pull with someone about who's right and who's wrong. Um, so, yeah, just completely agree with everything Adam and Hilda said there. I think I might point out as well um, just before we, I know we're about to wrap up, but something that we did touch on um, sort of when we were having our chat about what we were going to cover today as well was was a question, and I know this is something that I think a lot of medical students are thinking about, um, particularly as we pointed out before, in the age of social media and, and the online world and with medicine moving a little bit more into this sphere, there are often questions and concerns from medical students and doctors around, well, should I be doing this? And is this professional when we're talking about being in the social media sphere or being in the media sphere, for example? Um, and that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think as doctors, this is in our natural environment, you know, we're, we're not this, you know, we're not brought up or raised in this kind of place. Um, and there is a lot about medicine where, you know, we need to, to retain that trust with patients and keep that professional um, sort of relationship. And with social media in particular, it can be it can be a bit of a tricky minefield to, to navigate that. Um, but, I mean, obviously I'm sort of <laughs> a bit of a convert or preaching to my own choir in some ways, but... But, you know, I, I think 100% that doctors can be in this space and, and um, you know, whether it's to a small group of their friends and family who might be sort of following them or plugged into their community there, or it might be on a larger scale where they have thousands of, of people following them on an account, for example. You know, I, I think there can be a balance between providing people with an evidenced information, um, you know, and being a sort of a part of a community uh, without sort of moving into unprofessional spaces within that. But but it can be tricky, you know, and in the medico-legal type world as well, I think it is something that doctors worry about a lot. But, you know, as we've been talking about, when it comes to the wave of, you know, people selling things, people being financially invested in spreading messages online, um, things going viral, um, and a whole lot of quite dangerous at times misinformation coming out. You know, I think 
professional or not. Um, obviously, we need to remain professional, but this is a space that, that we do need to be thinking about moving into in whatever context as, as future doctors. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to jump in and sort of bring that little sort of um, point up as well before we close. Well, thanks everyone for your insights. I think you've given our audience a lot to think about. Yes, we live in a world that is digitally connected, where people spend a lot of time and get a lot of their information online. And it is hard, isn't it, to be willing to listen and engage and assist our patients in the uncertainty that's so often present. As you mentioned, it is important to be that voice, engaging people with reliable information and evidence, among all the harmful misinformation that's out there, in whatever way we can. Well, we really are out of time. So just in closing, if you had to give one piece of advice to our listeners, what would it be? I guess I guess I can jump in first and say, you know, it's it's tempting to to think of people who who absorb and act on kind of harmful misinformation as people who sort of belong to the fringes of society. But I think what we've learned from from just this discussion today is that that these people are not different to the rest of us. And and I like to remind myself that. that you know, for the handful of people who are very vocal in promoting misinformation, the, the people we tend to focus on most are these kind of very vocal people, but there's orders of magnitude more people who are misinformed just because of where and how they access, access information and who they trust. And these are really the people we want to influence. We don't want to influence a handful of people who are trying to burn down 5G towers. And, you know, we really want to be able to influence the 20 to 30% of people who agree with one or more of these kind of medical myths. Um, the young people that have heard that vaccines might cause autism from someone they know, um, people who just are at risk because they encounter this stuff online and feel like they want to belong to groups. You know, these are the real people who want to be able to reach out to and influence. Mine would be to slow down. You know, um, it's uh, you know the, the first thing that we need to do is to be not to be a source of misinformation ourselves. That's kind of like number one. And, uh, and it's awfully easy to do. So that becomes that whole process of stop, take the time. Why am I so willing to believe this? Uh, or why do I really want to disbelieve this? You know, um, take that, that time to, uh, to not just jump to a really, uh, it's a snap decision about which piece of information or, you're going to trust which side you're going to be on in an argument or whatever just slow down yeah and i guess for me off the back of both those points which are um super important ones and you know i've learned a lot during this discussion as well so thank you <laughs> thanks both of you guys um but but i think you know probably my advice here would be as a doctor and, and as i've harped on about the whole way through is is, is for for us as doctors and health professionals to, to not feel afraid to to know that we have a voice in this space and that it's an important one um, you know and and it doesn't mean as we've said arguing it doesn't mean feeling that you know as doctors we all have to have Instagram accounts where we're posting about medical stuff or, or trying to write things for newspapers or go on TV but it, it does mean that as we pointed out even in a clinic room or even you know at a dinner with family if, if things are coming up where we have a chance to to have a bit of a voice in and sort of um, 
stemming some of the flow of, of myth and misinformation. Um, I think that's really important and that's that's something that is a key part of being a doctor. You know, it's, it's not just about the knowing and the, the learning and the reading and, and the, the theory. It's also about how we, as Hilda said, sift through some of the information and slow down when we're when we're thinking about the evidence, but also how we communicate it and how we know that that in a world of a whole lot of voices and a whole lot of information, um, our voices are are important and and ones that our patients need to be um, hearing from as well. You know, not just the uh, the fitfluences and the uh, and the uh, you know online PTs and stuff on social media. So, yeah, I think my advice would be keeping that in mind as a as a future doctor. All right, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, everyone, for your time. Cool. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thank you all. Yes, I agreed. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the MCR MPO Podcast Mel Two Point Series. Our code word this week is graffiti. And if you go to our website, www.m2020.com.au and insert the code word in our portal, you go into the running for some great prizes and giveaways. And over the course of our series, you'll be able to collect an image for a week for our Mel 2.0 sticker book. The Mel 2.0 series is part of Ampio, the Australian Medical Students Association's ongoing podcast series to highlight speakers who would have presented at our 2020 AMSA National Convention. If you would like to learn more about our podcast, you can visit our website at www.m2020.com.au or our parent website, www.amsa.org.au. Or if you prefer, we are on social media as at AMSA Convention on Facebook and Instagram. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not definitively represent those of AMSA or their subsidiaries. If you would like to know more about our public policies, please visit our website at www.amsa.org.au and select Advocacy, followed by Official Policy. This episode of Ampure was hosted and edited by Daryl Goh, with guests Hilda Bastian, Adam Dunn, and Kieran Kennedy, music by James Pomia, and credits by Nick Barrett. Thanks for listening. Thank you.